host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my buddy Matt Border. Matt, what's going on, man? How much, Dmitry? It's uh, it's freezing here north of Boston. Yeah. Uh, you know, single digit temperatures Fahrenheit, and uh, you know, we got a, a rare tonight, a, a rare West Coast game on East Coast time. So I'm loving it. 7 p.m. start. You got to love it. Yeah. Well, people here in Vancouver generally hate that so much, but <laughs> it's considering the circumstances of this season and the fact that I think most Canucks fans at this point are cheering for the team to lose. I don't think they're really that bothered by it. Um, but here's what we're going to do today. It's a special bonus weekend episode of the PDO cast. That's right. We're recording this on a Saturday, late morning, my time, early afternoon, your time. I didn't want to wait till Monday to do this. I wanted to talk about the Dmitry Orlov and Garnet Hathaway trade to the Bruins with you. And I was like, you know what? Instead of waiting, let's just, let's just let it rip right now. We'll post it on the podcast feed as a, as a bonus episode for the listeners. They can listen to it whenever they want. Um, these shows this time of year can become outdated very quickly, but I feel like this is probably the, the big move the Bruins are going to make. So I'm, I'm, I'm not too worried about it becoming outdated. So let's just, let's just get right into it. Let's, let's let it rip from all sides. I guess this is a good starting point for us. I want to get into the timeline of events of kind of how this came together because it sure seems like it came together very quickly and on the fly, right? There was no real reports linking the Bruins to Dmitry Orlov. There were no reports linking anyone to Orlov for the most part because it feels like, at least up until this most recent week, the Capitals were going to try to sign him and extend him long-term and keep him in Washington. And then they kept losing in pretty miserable fashion. They were struggling to come to terms on especially how long the deal would be with Orlov. And so they decided on Thursday afternoon, all right, we're going to officially put him on the market. We're going to scratch him and Garnet Hathaway for quote-unquote trade-related reasons. And with literally within an hour, both guys were going to Boston. So talk me through from the Bruins' perspective, kind of if you've, if you've gathered any intel behind the scenes on how this came together, how they pivoted on the fly, whether this was in the works for longer than we knew, all that good stuff. Yeah, so I think... I certainly wasn't alone in watching Bruins Capitals games over the years. And I, I'm talking about management here, thinking this, that you look at Orlov and Hathaway and say, those are, those are perfect Bruins. They are there. They have the, the edge that, that we want to play with in Boston, that kind of thing. Um, Hathaway has, he's the most annoying game, you know, to play against that, that just, he's always in your face. He's always making faces at you after the whistle. He's always getting some some piece of his body or equipment into you wherever he is on the ice. And then Orloff is a two-way guy, open ice hitter. Like this, these guys are gonna be loved here in Boston. And so management was looking at them for for years, to my knowledge. And, you know, and that's uh, it's not to say they're the only guys, obviously. You know, there's a there's a huge list of guys that they like, you know, Zaka being one of them. He was somebody that they scouted for years. Um, but Washington, I mean, it was just two weeks ago today as we talk that they came into TD Garden, they handed the Bruins a regulation L, two to one. Hathaway scores the winning goal. Orloff has an assist. Hathaway has that great celebration where Cliff, he scores on a wrist shot from high in the slot. And Connor Clifton knocks him down and then he's on his back twirling his finger up at the, up at the rafters. You know, really fun stuff. But I don't think anybody was looking at them saying then that they're available because, you know, Washington is very much in, in the race. They're in a playoff spot at that time. And 
you know, what happens over the last two weeks up until Thursday? Well, they start losing I and mean, they lose to the Sharks. They lose to the, the to the Hurricanes. Okay, fine. Um, you know, they lose to the Panthers who are struggling and you really can't, you know, put one foot in front of the other right now. Um, you know, they get they get ripped up in the in the stadium series game in Carolina, they lose to Detroit, you lose to the Ducks. And so now it's like, okay, Alex Ovechkin is dealing with his personal stuff with his father. Um, his father passed away. And so just everything is in a tailspin. And I think, you know, that's whether it's when they lost to the wings or when they lost to to the ducks, I mean, you know, it, probably when they lost to the wings because Thursday Thursday night they didn't have those guys so excuse me for that you know it just makes it worse right um just kind of speaking about where the capitals are at this point in the season but you know you, you lose you lose those games and you're just I guess that's when you look start looking and saying all right well we're not going anywhere this year it's 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 happened and I give them credit I mean they're not sitting here saying yeah but you know Ovechkin's gonna come back and he's gonna be upset because you know we're starting you know we're selling off pieces you know there's not this they're not beholden, or at least they're showing right now that they're not beholden to, you know, we have to try to make a run at this and be respectable, respectable, quote unquote. They're saying, you know, let's get rid of these guys. Let's try to get something for them, both UFAs coming up. So it did come together quickly. The Bruins were looking at other options. I think the Chickering thing, you know, they they would love to have Jacob Chickering on this team. Arizona wasn't moving off the price, so they're looking elsewhere. Well, you should let us know. Like, I, I was pitching you on some pretty banger three-team trades involving getting chicken <laughs> to the Bruins, and, and I think they were maybe a bit too creative for for the NHL's purposes, but they were certainly there. My DMs are the HF board slash Reddit thread that will never be that will never see the light of day. It would absolutely do fire on those websites. Hey, but... all of my trades were actually cap compliant. Okay, a lot of the HF boards trades are, and. I mean, for a variety of reasons, they wouldn't happen, but mostly because they actually legally could not happen in the NHL. Mine, at least, uh, passed the, yeah, passed the math test. I'm not going to crack open the DMs right now, but I will say you argued very passionately for them, and uh, I think uh, more players were involved than, than you'd be uh, than you would think here. Yeah. Um, I give well, you a lot of credit okay. for your trades. Here, here's here's what I what I'm I'm with you on on the whole sort of synopsis of the rundown of from the Caps perspective and the Bruins also being interested in Orlov as a player for a while you know I think the surprising part for me and and it speaks to how quickly this all sort of came together and developed is I always viewed Orlov as like a part of the core like I like for the past year or so I've been highly interested in other potential spots for him where I'm like oh he would look good here but unfortunately I was like well even though he's an upcoming UFA, I just it's tough to envision him playing elsewhere. It feels like he's just going to be a capital for life. They're going to sign him. They're going to kind of do this with this core for another couple of years, and then after that, they're going to move on. Um, and so they clearly decided to to go a different route because of how the past couple of weeks have gone for them. And and we'll save the cap stuff for later in terms of like the strategy and all that because I think there's some interesting components there as well. But what we're toying around here is you did some reporting on on the Bruins sort of connection of Vladislav Gavrikov previously, and it seemed like he was like the most logical um, target for them because it seemed like Chikrin was like a bit too ambitious or the price was too high and, and they weren't going to be willing to facilitate everything that would need to happen to make that work. So Gavrikov was linked to them and you had a report that sort of Port cold water, I guess, refuted some of the other reporting we'd seen in terms of how close that deal was. And now that the Bruins went ahead and chose Orlov instead, smartly so, by the way, is significantly better player. 
the, the Blue Jackets are pretty pissed on their end. Yeah, and that's what I'm hearing. But from my end, I've I'd never heard anything that they had a deal in place like that. That the Bruins signed off on this pending moving pieces, as was as I had seen reported by people that are reputable. And whether that speaks to a breakdown like Jerome McGinley, you know, in 2013, that situation where one side believes something, you know, whether there's a bait and switch or whether it's just a misunderstanding or whether it's one side hearing something that they want to hear and the other side, you know, hearing what they want to hear. I don't know. That's going to come out in, in you know, probably in months and years to come. But what I was hearing throughout is that they didn't have a deal in place for Gavrikov. They certainly weren't going to pay a first round pick for Vladislav Gavrikov. That he wasn't that kind of player in their eyes. And I don't know. What I really want to know is when did they find out Columbus's plans to flip that first round pick for Jacob Chikrin? I, I'd like to know when exactly they learned of that because you could read it as we're not letting them do that. Or you could read, or you could read it as, "Hey, they just, you know, that's not their concern. They don't really care." Um, so it's kind of funny. You don't know how much spite exactly is in NHL front offices and pettiness. I, but I would suspect, I would suspect Matt that that's not really a big part of it. I think their yeah. interest was probably overblown. I'm sure they had many conversations, yes. and and it's understandable. It was the connection? It seems like a lot of the reporting is coming from Blue Jacket sources here. Right, it was. And, and it's understandable why they would be looking to push the agenda of, oh, we've got a team very interested in Gavrikov, and they're going to pay a first and a third and whatever. It's like, yeah, because I'm it worked for David. So, yeah, because it worked for David Savard in his trade value. So, yeah. let's try this again. I, I mean, it's it's you know, friendly reporters get in tight with front offices, and that's what they're hearing. So, it's what they're reporting. I mean, it kind of it takes like. There's this, this, it takes a village aspect to the NHL trade deadline where you have different reporters in different markets that, you know, have been tight with front offices for years, have sources, know what they can and can't say on and off the record. And you kind of just cobble it together and figure out what makes the most sense. I'm just not, I'm not buying the the line of thinking that the Bruins kind of pulled the fast one on Columbus here. It, it just, just based on what I know of their interest in Gavrikov, he, you know, was a guy that they could have made use for, certainly. Uh, or use of, but they weren't going to pay that price. And you know, that, if it helps, if it helps juice the uh, the trade value for Gavrikov in some way, then I guess everybody wins. But the Bruins didn't yeah. want to get involved there. No, I don't. I don't think it did. I, I would find it hard to believe that someone's going to meet that reported asking price at this point. But I mean, well, plus as well, plus as well, how it? Let's say that that is Columbus's plan. Not to get on a Blue Jackets tangent here, but it, if that is their plan, how? They're going to play Zach Rowenski and Jacob Chikrin next year together. I, does that make sense? I, I don't know. I, I don't know what their what their idea, beyond just getting a good player at a good price, you know, what would their plan be? But that's just well, from my standpoint. Yeah, I mean, good good young player who's, what, turning 25 at, at a cost-controlled price for at least two more seasons. I think they're pretty embarrassed with how this year has gone for them after yeah. making the big splash on Goudreau. And so I understand why they'd be interested in that. I... I, I'm like you. I'm I'm very fascinated in the timeline of events and how it all came together. I don't think it ultimately matters that much. Like, I I understand if the Blue Jackets felt like they had a deal in place, why they'd be annoyed. But at the same time, we're in the business of of winning hockey games and assembling the best team possible. And and so if the Bruins are like, well, a much better option just came available, and we still haven't committed to anything, then 
that's kind of the business, right? And, and that unfortunate timing for the Blue Jackets, but that's kind of how it came together. Let's mm-hmm. let's get into the Bruins' perspective here from this trade because right now they're on pace for 134 points. Only now, what's interesting is the Hurricanes are sneakily within seven points of them at the moment. They've played the same number of games. They have one more meeting in Carolina, I believe, in March, and. You know, it's looking way ahead. The Eastern Conference Final is a long time from now. There's a lot of tough games that we played for both teams between now and then, certainly, especially in round two. But I I would think if I were the Bruins, there'd be added motivation to win as many regular season games the rest of the way as you can to ensure that you have the President's Trophy so that you have home ice advantage in a potential Eastern Conference Final because we both saw how last year's series played out between these two teams and the importance of home ice just because of how having last change allowed them essentially to dictate defensive matchups, i.e. who Jordan Stahl was basically able to play against, right? And I think the Bruins are certainly more well-positioned to combat that this year, right? Like, they're not as nearly as top-heavy. They've split up their top two lines. They have much better personnel, and I think they'll be able to not just be completely shut out on the road if, if Jordan Stahl is going up against their best players, but... It's really important in that matchup where every single little edge matters. And so we're all viewing this through the lens of like, all right, well, this helps the Bruins come to playoffs and the goal is to win a Stanley Cup. But I still think there's like a bit of runway here in the final 25 games or whatever that are actually meaningful for them, despite how many points they've already banked. I agree. And they're good enough to win games as they figure out where these players fit. And, you know, I, I... We don't need to drill down on who exactly they're playing, but there are some games there where you're thinking, okay, well, we can just kind of throw any combination out there and we're going to be in this game competitively. Um, I, I really think that they're looking at Carolina. They have to be looking at Carolina. Knowing that Carolina is probably going to make another move as their chief competition in the East right now. Um, I don't think they're booking themselves for the Eastern Conference Finals right off the bat, given they have to play Tampa or Toronto in round two. Mm-hmm. But... Um, Definitely, you look at just just how disruptive Carolina is. Like that that in itself is something that I was thinking about when I was watching Orlov as well. As I know we're going to get into, you know, what Orlov brings and how he fits and all that stuff. But just you look at how a team like Carolina, with their speed and their aggression, just disrupts everything that you want to try to do. Fitting Orlov into the Bruins system so he can play against teams like that is going to be, I think, the number one job of Jim Montgomery down the stretch here. Who does he play well with? Who does he communicate well with? You know, can he get on the page of the Bruins and how they want to play in the D zone, handing off responsibility rather than playing man to man? I mean, it's kind of hard to diagnose Washington in recent weeks and how they want to play, but they are generally a little more man to man than the Bruins. Um, you know, Orlov's kind of a kind of a do-it-all guy that wants to, you know, he can kind of assess the situation, be where he needs to be. Can he do that in the Bruins system against a team that's coming right at you like Carolina? They have to figure that out right now. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a unique circumstance where the Bruins have a plus 94 goal differential. No one else, the Hurricanes are second best at plus 47, just to show, kind of illustrate the gap. It's absurd, by the way. I know, it's comical. It's absurd. They're second in scoring. Only the Oilers are scoring slightly more because of a historically great power play. But the gap between the Bruins and, and the Hurricanes, who are second stingiest defensively, is also comically large. And so you look at that and it's like, it's pretty tough to find a statistical weakness for this team. And when you say it like that, it's like, all right, well, how can you realistically improve? And typically when we see teams playing this well, not that 
it's very rare that a team's playing to this caliber throughout a regular season, especially through 60 games or so. But generally, we see the top teams sort of more so tinker on the margins, right? Like you're adding kind of depth, you're you're looking ahead to the playoffs and being like, all right, let's let's add some secondary scoring or let's add another another body on the blue line just in case injuries happen. You rarely see them go out and make a significant add in in Dmitry Orlov like this. And for my money, like one of my favorite players in the league to watch and has been for years. I just think he's he's one hell of a hockey player, right? Like uh the the reason why I think he hasn't gotten the attention or love nationally he deserves is just because he doesn't play on the top unit power play in Washington, right? John Carlson man's that role. They use their top unit probably more so than like nearly any other team in the league. And he just soaks up all those points. And so you look in Orlov's career high is 35 points that I believe he had last year. And as smart as we've gotten in terms of evaluating players and recognizing what matters and what doesn't, we still generally revert back to like, how many points does this guy have? And that's a sign of how good they are. And there's so many different ways, especially for a defender to impact games. And for my money, Orlov checks every single one of those boxes, both on and off the puck. And so I think this is a good opportunity here now for us to just really jump into his game, specifically what he does and how he's going to help this Bruins team, because I'm really fascinated about that element of the stream. Yeah, absolutely. And for me too, watching this team and watching you know, them so closely, where does he fit? You know, who does he play with and, and how are they going to use who comes out of the lineup is, is fascinating for me too. A, a lesser conversation. But for Orloff, it, it's funny to me that he's almost gotten a rep around the league of being like this openized beast, you know, throw a big hit kind of thing. Because like you mentioned, he's good at a lot of different things. And that's kind of, I guess, the one thing that stands out in highlights is that he'll, you know, he'll step up on a guy and, and you know, just, just destroy him in open ice. He's done that a few times against the Bruins. Um, gotten himself on the wrong side of things with the like two years ago in the playoffs, basically ended Kevin Miller's career um, with a, a high hit, you know, to the chin, gave him a concussion. Um, Miller, you know, was on the way out anyway, had knee problems and all that. But that's the rep that he's gained. Whereas there's so much more to his game than just that. You know, he's two way left side, right side, all three zones. You know, can play can play your power play he can do a credible job up there as a you know facilitator sometimes stepping into open looks and things but for this team he's going to be a penalty killer he's basically going to take his ability to kill penalties block shots be stout be hard he's going to take a Hampus Lindholm off the PK entirely probably which is fantastic for the Bruins because Lindholm is a guy that wants to play 25 minutes can play 25 minutes but if you're optimizing Lindholm at 22 minutes oh boy you know that's going to be big um, I don't know who he's going to play with, but as far as his chemistry with this team, I don't know. Like he plays with, he plays with checking lines. He gets them the puck in good situations. He can, he can run with the Ovechkins and Backstroms. Um, I don't know exactly the peak of his powers really, mm. which is, you know, like, I don't know exactly, uh, you know, he, he does have a good shot, but he's not a goal scorer. He can pass but he's not exactly a setup guy from the back end. Um, I just think he's one of those just pieces that just kind of like a rising tide kind of thing, you know, it well, slots in somewhere in the middle. Let me give you a couple of stats before I, before I give you my tape impressions on him. So the last time he didn't lead the Capitals in five on five usage, you have to go back to 2015, 16, which is his first full NHL season where he didn't play any AHL games. And I, I think that might surprise some people, right? Like I, I think he's legitimately, a top pairing defenseman. They've used him as such, despite his raw 
minutes or point totals. Like they've relied on him to take that capacity. He's been so consistent for them. Evolving Hockey had this interesting stat where over the past three seasons, these are the top 10 defensemen in expected goals above replacement. Kale McCarr, number one. Adam Fox, number two. Jared Spurgeon, number three. Devon Taves, number four. Charlie McAvoy, number five. Roman Yossi, number six. Chris Tanev, number seven. Dmitry Orlov, number eight. And then number nine is Eric Carlson, 10 Ekblad. That passes That passes the smell test to me. Those are 10 pretty pretty good defensemen in, in, in today's NHL, and that's over the past three years. And... I, I think the fit here is perfect because I'm not sure I would have said as such last year under Bruce Cassidy, but I actually think some of the wrinkles that they've incorporated under Jim Montgomery this year tie in perfectly to the way Orlov wants to play, specifically offensively. I think defensively, it would have been as much of a fit last year because it's interesting you mentioned like the the open ice hits. I think he doesn't... Orlov's 31 now. I think he's turning 32 this summer. I don't think he goes with them as with as much frequency or reckless abandon as he might have when he was a bit younger. He sort of picks his spots a bit more. But when you still watch him play, he's so aggressive in the neutral zone as a defender. Like, he steps up, he uses his stick, he tries to get kind of gap up on you, and and you're not going to get clean zone entries against him. And yes. that's a hallmark of the Bruins' defense, right? Like, no team has better connectivity between their forwards and defensemen. No team maintains those better gaps. They force you. The reason why they always have such good possession metrics is partly because they force you to get rid of the puck, dump it in, and then they go back and retrieve it. And especially when they have Bergeron out there, part of the the wizardry of it is he comes back down solo. The defenseman's able to get it to him and they're quickly out of the zone. And so you're not actually spending any time defending in your own end when those top players are out there. And Orlov is going to give them another player that can help facilitate that process defensively. Yeah, he's quick enough. You know, when they want to go on the attack from the D zone, he's, like you said, he's he is very good at denying entries or making it difficult, but he's all... He's good enough to be the guy that handles the puck in the corner and gets it to the weak side defenseman for a breakout or up the wall for the wing or wherever Bergeron's kind of floating back. Or he can just be the guy that's in front of the net, you know, and he can kickstart with a good pass or he can get his feet moving. It's it's the do-it-all nature of his game that that's that's really impressive um, and and will help this team. But I, it's the the obvious the obvious question for me is is does he knock Matt Grizzlick out of the lineup? Mm. Because when you talk about five-on-five usage, Grizzlick is a guy who basically right now plays exclusively five-on-five minutes. And, you know, so they can carry a guy like that in their lineup, especially if he's as productive as Grizzlick is. But I, I don't know. Is it as easy? You would think for a team chasing a championship, it would be easy to, to think, okay, I can just take a back seat. You know, because I know I'm, you know, I have the carrot in front of me that I'm going to get my number called at some point if I'm Matt Grizzlick. Um, but I don't know. Does that actually There's work in no, practice? There is no chance. If they're removing Grizzlick out of the lineup, that's a big mistake in my opinion. I, I, well, yeah. I here, here's okay. So I assume out of the gate they're going to play him. They're going to play Orlov with McAvoy, right? I assume I at, at I least at least a test to test drive it, and he's kind of like the shiny new toy, similar to what we saw with. O'Reilly goes to the Leafs and it's like, all right, you get to play with John Tavares and Mitch Marner here, have some fun, as opposed to like being like, in the playoffs, you're going to be our third third, third line center, so just go there immediately. Like they're, they're having some fun with it out of the gate. I think that's what they'll do here. In they which case... It with, yeah, they did it with at the end of Chara's career. They put him with McAvoy to carry Chara. They, when they were trying to break in new guys on the left side, like a Jakob Sabor or Earl Valkanen, and they go with McAvoy, et cetera, and so on. It's That's, well, that's what they'll do. That, that pairing will have... 100% possession shares. Yeah. They they will not give the other team the puck. But if you do that, 
here's the trickle down for me. So you go Hampus Lindholm and Connor Clifton. Now we saw that that duo, mm. we saw that duo double as the team's top pair at the start of the year, right? Mm-hmm. Like when McAvoy was out, they relied on them to that degree. They played 250 minutes together this season. The Bruins are up 17 to four and five and five with them, and they have a 63% expected goal share. That's a that's a combination that I would actually feel pretty comfortable mm-hmm. leaning on. And then you go Carlo Grizzlick, and you have to have Grizzlick on the ice with Carlo because. You need someone to insulate him on the breakout. Like you need yes. a slick puck mover beside him. You cannot have another guy who treats the puck like a grenade, especially on the breakout. I, like it's just not going to work. Like I like his reach. I like his ability to defend in 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 transition. Car- uh, Carlos, right? Like he uses his size very well in that regard. I understand the appeal, but you need someone alongside him that can once you actually go back to retrieve the puck, make a pass out of the zone, and Matt Grizzlick is phenomenal at that. And so absolutely. I, I, I like that combination. We've seen them play together a lot, right? Like they've played 900 five on five minutes the past three years and, and they've fared very well because they have very complementary skill sets in that regard. They sort of both physically make up for each other's shortcomings, but but also like stylistically. So I like that. I guess my question for you though, based off of that is at some point, do we see Jim Montgomery do something that he's been kind of reluctant to this year, which is just play Lindholm and McAvoy together at five on five? That's something that Bruce Cassidy did pretty much all the time last year down the stretch, right? Like, I think they played, like, 80% of Lynn Holmes' minutes last year after he got traded to the Bruins together. Uh, this year, it's been significantly less. I think it's only 25% or so. And they just have felt like it's unnecessary. It's kind of overkill. It's better to spread those guys out because they're such beasts. But in this case, I think Orlov's versatility in terms of he's a great rush defender, but he's also a fantastic puck mover. All of a sudden, you can play him. You can play him with Carlo if you want. You can play him with like Clifton. You can bounce him around the lineup any way you want, and that kind of opens the door, I think, for a potential McAvoy Lindholm pairing, especially in high leverage moments against other teams' best players. That is a really interesting luxury that I think they didn't really have before this trade. Well, I think you might see Jim Montgomery unleashed in this way, and you know, assistant coach John Gruden has a hand in this as well, the defensive assistant. They wanted the whole season to get everybody comfortable with everybody else. So they could go situationally in a way that we really haven't seen the Bruins do in the past. Like they want to be able to throw Lindholm and McAvoy out at the end of games with Pasternak, Marchand, and Bergeron. Like that's, you know, they want to have those five man units. Um, they want to be able to throw, you know, Carlo and Derek Forbert. Maybe now it's, you know, maybe now it's Orloff, you know, kind of match up their their D pairs that way kind of have like super pairs that, that do things like Grizzly and McAvoy when you want five on five puck moving, et cetera, and so on. Um, I don't think it's a reluctance on Montgomery's part to do that. I just think, like you said, it's more the overkill part. Like he just hasn't really had to because um, they keep rolling along, but maybe we do see that in the playoffs and maybe Orlov carries the second pair you know, and, and, and that's, and that's how they roll. The forward question is interesting for me. And I know, it's almost like the Gavrikov conversation, right? Like, why are we devoting so much airtime to a guy with Vladislav Gavrikov's skill set? I'm really interested to see how much old school thinking there is on this staff and whether I don't think it's going to come from above Jim Montgomery's head here. But, you know, we know Cam Neely has a certain way that he likes the Bruins to play. We know that Don Sweeney also is of that kind of same thinking, even though Sweeney's a little bit more progressive and wanting undersized puck moving defensemen like a Clifton, like a Matt Grizzlick, uh, Tory Krug back in the day. You know, Derek Forbert still has a lot of respect 
in that organization for what he does. And is he going to be your seven kind of come in in game three in the series when guys are worn out? That's probably a good role for him. Um, but boy, there's a lot of respect built up for that guy. I'm kind of wondering, you know, does he automatically come out of the lineup? Probably. Uh, but, you know, how is that conversation going to go and how is that going to look is, is kind of something that's interesting to me. Well, yeah. I mean, he's clearly their seventh best defenseman right now. So, uh, but I, yeah, I, I, yes. I get what you're saying. It'll be interesting. It'll be, it will be a bit of a, a litmus test for, uh, for this coaching staff's, um, adaptability, I guess, for, for a lack of a better phrase. I was hinting at this before about the changes they've made under Montgomery, right? In terms of their system, Orlov is a fantastic puck mover as well. And that's a key part of this. I mentioned that in terms of how that allows you to potentially play him with a guy like Carlo, if you want to load up that top pairing. Last postseason, when I tracked all the games, only Miro Heiskanen and Kale McCarr were more efficient at exiting their own zone with the puck. And part of that was because Orlov is so aggressive as an actual puck carrier himself, right? Like he can certainly make a pass out of the zone, but by nature, he loves to just get it and just go. And like he leads the rush, he gets involved in that way. And I know especially at the start of the year, there was a lot of talk about how, uh, you know, the Bruins were like a guy like Lindholm, for example, was really thriving because all of a sudden Jim Montgomery comes in and he's like, yeah, I want you guys to get more involved. I want you to make plays up the ice. I want you to get it and go and not necessarily be so beholden to like the rigidity or structure of your role where you get the puck, you pass it, you stay back. Like you can, we have enough support from our forwards and we have enough smart, good players that everyone can just play a more free-flowing brand of hockey. And so I wonder if Orlov is the perfect fit in that regard as well, because if they're going to let him play that way, they can really unleash him as a guy who just transports the puck that way. Um, and 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 that would obviously be a much better fit this year than, than maybe last year with the way they played under Bruce Cassidy. Yeah, it's almost like, how much of that do you have? Like, we'll take all of it, you know, if you're, if you're Montgomery. Like, the forwards at this point in the season know to fill in the gaps. The partners, you know, know that if... if like like Clifton's a great is a great example of this because his game like he just wants to just go. I mean, he had these wild like they he was described to me like when he was coming up as like a wild horse. Like he just he just goes. Um, quick, can I do a quick quick Connor Clifton story? By the way, okay, like you know what story? You let's take a break here. Yeah, just really quick, and then when we come back, we'll do that and we'll we'll kind of close the loop on this conversation. All right. Sounds great. Okay, let's do it. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Vancouver sports fans. Halford and Bruff in the morning. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Matt. Sorry for cutting you off there before we went to break. I'll allow you here to give. I Listen, I always have space. I always save space on this PDO cast for Connor Clifton stories because I, I maintain the no show that doesn't cover the Bruins on a full-time basis has spent nearly the amount of time talking about Connor Clifton that we have here. And I think deservedly so. I think I've been, I've been vindicated. I've been proven quite right this year because they've given him a larger role and he's thrived and he's shown everything that I've talked about for years, which is despite his frame and despite his size, he's an absolute menace who punishes you. And I just, I, I think like, this is what you need to do. Next time you see Connor Clifton, you need to give him my business card. Tell him to hire me as his agent because he's got a big con- he's got a big contract decision coming up here this summer, and I don't think there's anyone more fit to represent him than myself. It's you know what he's really everything you want in a modern defenseman. Like he loves, like you said, he loves to hit you, to reverse hit you. He doesn't mind to be hit. 
he's just fun to watch from a physical standpoint, especially being 5'11", 180 or whatever he is. I think he might be 190 now. but And also, he loves to go. like He loves to take the puck up the ice and wheel the net and look for something. You know, or just kind of get open for for a one timer. Like he's so much fun to watch. So the story is his NHL debut came in Dallas in 2018, November whatever 2018, and I had a perfect view. I was right on the right on the blue line with the Bruins, you know, in the in the Bruins zone from the press box in Dallas. His first shift gets on, you know, gets on the ice. He's kind of like he's everywhere. He's you can tell he's just way over skating everything. Um, and it was, he was kind of a gong show and finally he sees the opportunity to change and he was on the far side of the ice from the Bruins bench and he, he just peels off to the bench, almost like somebody had been like, like the reaction that he had, the way he turned his head and his body was almost as if somebody said, Connor, like screamed at him. He full sprint to the bench grabs as he's coming in. There's no stop. He grabs Maybe slow down a little bit, drag his rear skate a little bit to to you know stop his momentum a little bit. Both gloves on the bench, does a full press, turns over over the dasher, and lands in his seat all in one motion. I've never seen anybody change off that way, especially not on their first NHL shift. It's fantastic. I loved it. I'm like I'm gonna enjoy watching this guy for as long as he is here. Max effort all the time. Love to see it. He's fantastic. Um, and his contract is going to be fascinating, by the way. We will we will talk about this later in the season, I'm sure. But at $1 million right now, oh boy, cannot wait to see where this lands. Well, couldn't believe that the Kraken chose to take Jeremy Lozon over him. Can't believe the way people talk about him. I, I'm i prepared to be hurt oh. by his extension as well because he probably will not get compensated fairly for how good of a player he is. But the show must go on. Um, so... We haven't really talked that much about Garner Hathaway here. I just, like, I'm just so infatuated by Orlov as a player and the fit here and the potential combinations that his presence allows them to experiment with that I I wanted to kind of center the discussion about that. I don't know if you have any any Hathaway points. Like, I think beyond all of the, you know, typical playoff tropes about being tough to play against and Starl and all that stuff, like, he's proven that... When he's on the ice, he's very efficient at his role. He has legitimately good underlying numbers, particularly in terms of defensive impact. And he's a, just a highly useful player who will chip in with the occasional goal as well. But like for a you know fourth liner that I assume they're going to use him as, like it's great. There's nothing I, I don't. The analysis beyond that isn't particularly that interesting to me. But I didn't want to you know do this trade conversation and then not mention him his inclusion in this as well because he's clearly part of it. But I don't know. Do you have anything else on that? Yeah, less about the player and more about the fit. I mean, for what he does, like you said, he's great at it. He's he's an excellent fourth liner, penalty killer, agitator, annoying guy, has size, can skate, is responsible, um, has been an irritant to the Bruins in playoff series in the past, will be an irritant to whoever they play against. Um, he's an upgrade on AJ Greer, who has done pretty well for himself in his role. Um, you know, but the Bruins I, I don't know how much handedness. I, I, I'm way more concerned about handedness on a D pair than I am on a forward line. Yeah. I just, it, it just doesn't really. So having him as a right shot replacement on the right side for Craig Smith probably works. Just didn't really work this year for Smith. I'd love to know. He he would never tell us what he was playing through, but it was obvious that he was playing through something. Like on breakup day last year, 
you know, we kind of asked them a couple different ways, subtly and also directly, you know, are you going to have surgery or kind of what was going on this year? He just stonewalled us on that, didn't want to talk about it. So I don't know what's going on, but he also didn't really fit in Montgomery's system. Um, he's a guy that really just wants to rip shots off the wing, and that's just not the way that they want to play. They want possession. They want high-danger chances, and th- there's not a volume shooter in that group now. Um, well, Pasternak, of course, but he, mm. can, he can volume shoot all he wants. Um, so it, it's a, it, it's just he's a great addition. Um, it's Frederick Foligno Hathaway, if he plays up a little bit, down in the lineup. Um, you know, you have your Thomas Nosek being smart, responsible above the puck, and then Hathaway below the circles. And um, it, it's just they have a great mix for for the style that they want to play in the bottom six. And really, you know, like we've said, playoff tropes being what they are, any any bottom six would would welcome a guy like that in the playoffs. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I I do wonder if the Capitals circle back circle back to Orlov this summer, and yeah, uh, and 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 revisit bringing him back on a long-term deal. I know that a sticking point was term and I get it because I actually, I'm wary of how he's going to age based on how chaotically he plays and like how going full blast and just throwing his body around and just brushing up the ice and everything we've talked about so far isn't something that particularly lends itself to aging gracefully when you're 34, 35 years old, which he will be in a couple of years. So I get that reservation. I, I just think, you know, it's pretty clear based on everything we've heard I like the strategy here from the Capitals in this trade because they realize they're like, all right, we have like whatever, a 15% chance of making the playoffs this year. But realistically, we're fighting with five other teams who have a better point percentage than us for two wildcard spots. It's like, what are we what are we really trying to accomplish here? So I get that it's it's kind of, you know, it's sad to be punting uh one on Ovechkin season when you don't know how many more of these you're gonna have left. But I think they're clearly similar to the reporting we've heard from about what the Blues intend to do, which is they trade O'Reilly, they trade Tarasenko, they get a bunch of draft capital back, and they're going to try to flip that into players that can help them build around Thomas and Cairo and those guys. I think the Capitals are going to, this summer, explore and investing all of that dra- all this draft capital they got here, which was a first, a second, and a third in the future, into players that can help them. And you look at the blue line, other than John Carlson, they literally don't have anyone under contract right now. Like They're going to sign... Barn Ferravari is an RFA, but beyond that, there's a lot of money to go around, a lot of roster spots to go around, and so I think they're going to have a lot of flexibility and ammo to to get creative um, this summer. So I did want to bring that up from this element. I was ultimately, I have to admit, underwhelmed by the return. Maybe I am I'm on the high end of my Orlov evaluations, right? Like I I view him as such a needle mover that I'm like, man, I can't believe that other teams weren't willing to pay more than this. But ultimately, I guess this is this is the best they could have gotten. Like I, I, I'm, I'm not sure how much they actually shopped him around, and, and whether the rest of the league agrees with with my take on what type of player he is. But I just find it hard to believe that, considering they took back Smith's deal, which was, um, you know, a point of contention for the Bruins, like they desperately needed to do that in some trade. They retained money on on Orlov, and all they got back was what they got. I understand it with rentals. Sometimes you don't get what we think you're going to get, but I feel like they could have or should have gotten more in the separate trade. Yeah. I mean, Orloff has a five team, no trade list. So maybe that played into it. I don't know. Given how quickly things came together, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. 
I give the Capitals and Blues, for that matter, a lot of credit. I mean, this is a market inefficiency. You just basically, if you know you can re-sign these guys anyway, why not just try to get what you can for them if you know you're not going to make the playoffs? It would be really interesting to see how many GMs' heads explode around the league if the Capitals re-sign Orlov, maybe Hathaway, probably not, but definitely Orlov. If the Blues get <laughs> finally O'Reilly and O'Reilly back, it, you know, it, what's that going to do? Is that going to kill this? Is that going to kill this this market for for rentals for teams that are just gave it a good go and are just kind of out of it, just want to get something back? You know, is that going to depress that market? I don't know. Well, but considering how many times Tarasenko asked out of St. Louis, I don't. Well, yeah, not, I don't see him coming back. But it has been reported that O'Reilly is at least a consideration for them this summer. Yeah, no, I, I mean you're you're right. I I think that's that, that's a good point. I guess. And I'm curious whether they ever broach this topic in these trade conversations because, like I said, it happened seemed to happen so quickly, right? There was like an hour between Orlov being ruled out and him being a member of the Bruins, and maybe the conversations go be before that. But if I were the Capitals here, I would have I would have pushed really hard to get Boston's like 2025 first or 2026 first. It's, it's something we don't see that often in NHL trades. It's much more of an NBA thing where you just like, you realize that, all right, uh, a really good team's first round pick this summer is not that valuable to us. But in a couple of years, especially if they have an aging core the way that the Bruins do, two, three years from now, maybe Patrice Bergeron isn't on this team. Maybe they're not nearly as good anymore. And all of a sudden that first becomes a legitimate premium asset. In this case, it's like, a pick that's likely to be in the late 20s, early 30s, even in a loaded draft, is not a premium asset to me. I know that a first-round pick is a first-round pick, but it's just not... You cannot equate it to what you'd get in the top 10 or top 15 or whatever, right? And so yeah. I just... Uh, for a player of Orlov's caliber, considering how much um, you know they did financially to facilitate this deal and taking Smith's contract back and retaining 50% of Orlov's contract... I would have thought they'd be able to push for a more premium asset than that. And so I wonder if they asked for that 2025 and the Bruins were just like, well, we can't do that because we're too scared of what this team's going to look like then. But that's uh, that's purely speculation on my part. That's that's a fascinating idea because I, I do wonder, like, have we even seen that? Have you have we seen a team trade like that has its upcoming first-round pick trade a first-rounder in the next couple of years? I can't remember it, but I mean, there's been so many trades over the past however many years. Um, that is kind of fascinating, though. No, I think... Is is this the the question? I guess is is this fair value for Orlov? And you know, I think if you're if you're looking at it from the perspective of a essentially a borderline first second rounder and a and a second round pick for Orlov, because like let's say Hathaway is the the fifth or whatever, it, it, separating separating the different pieces of this trade to try to figure out what exactly Dmitry Orlov is worth. If you give the whole package for Dmitry Orlov. I might take that trade. <laughs> like I just, I think he's that good of a player. Yeah. So it's hard. It's hard for me to see. And it, you know, I don't have a pair of black and gold colored glasses here, so I'm not worried about that. But it's like a, it really is hard for me to see this as anything other than a a home run for the Bruins. Yeah, it's far. It got significantly better at a very manageable price. Like I, like I said, I, I their 2025 or 2026 first is a significantly more valuable asset in my opinion moving forward than whatever pick they wind up having in the first round this year, even though there's more like immediacy at play and it's easier to sell that to your fans. And there's like, oh, we got an extra first this year as opposed to like, wait three years and then see what we get. But well, yeah. that's, you're, you're talking about a year which Posternock will be in the, 
the second year of his $11 million deal. Yeah. So that's, that is something that if he wins the con Smythe, by the way, I just want to say this quickly. If he wins the con Smythe this year, he might be a $13 million player. Mm. Might happen. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll see about that. That's, that's, that's a conversation <laughs> literally for another day because there's, there's a lot of time between now and then. All right, man, let's, um, yeah, no, I, I, listen, I, like I said, I like, I like this trade from the caps just purely from a strategic perspective. I just wish they would have pushed for something a bit more, more with more upside, I guess is, is the best way to put it. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's get out of here. Um, I'll let you let the listeners know where they can check you out, what you've got in the books or in the works because you're not with the team, unfortunately here in Vancouver during their, uh, Western Canada road trip. So let us know what you're, uh, what you're cooking up over there. Yeah, uh, working on some features here that we'll be rolling out over the next few weeks. Um, my guy, Kevin Paul DuPont, is uh, in Vancouver on that trip, so follow his work if you want up-to-date uh, Bruins coverage. But um, always working on my Sunday column at the Boston Globe, Sunday Hockey Notes, 2,500 words of goodness. Uh, usually some interviews with some interesting people and conversations about the game. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Matty Ports. M-A-T-T-Y-P-O-R-T-S. Some people think it's Maddie Sports, but it's not. It's Maddie Ports. And uh, yeah, if you get a chance, check out my work at the Boston Globe and uh, I'll be around. All right, man. Well, we'll uh, thanks for taking the time on this uh, on this Saturday. We'll certainly have you back on on the road. We'll be back on this feed um, on Monday with more trade deadline content as we barrel towards Friday's uh, finale. So looking forward to that. Thank you to everyone for listening. Hopefully you enjoy this bonus episode and we'll be back soon. So thank you for listening to the Hockey PDO guest streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network.